0: Welcome to the MacAFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 277. Okay, so last week we brought back the Tasty Chips segment. Um, I think this that was like the first time we've done that
1: a seg, a name segment in like hundred episodes or something like that. It's been a it's been a hot minute. Yeah. And and tasty chips, gosh, what was the genesis of tasty chips? It was uh, it was the we were coming
0: up with a chip company right A uh, chip company yeah and and each part number would be an m but a sequence of m's it's like mmm <laughs> like eating, eating a tasty chip <laughs> that's right so yeah. the first chip would be m one yeah, m right. yeah and then second
1: would be two m's three m's etc etc it's like that uh, crash test dummy song where the name of the song is 12 letter m's just mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i did not even know that the
0: crash test wait are you talking about the tv show no no it's a band in the 90s
1: there was a crash test dummy tv show oh yeah i mean that was a cartoon back in the day yeah uh yeah here let me i'm gonna i'm gonna this this song is both awesome and awful at the same time where are you putting it i'm putting it in our twitch stream yeah, just go look at the name of it it's just 12 letter m's and that's the chorus as well so go listen to that sometime okay i'm not i'm not going to uh put it in our hey in our they recording. could be that could be the uh theme song for the tasty chips company, <laughs> tasty chips company.
0: <laughs> so this week i found um actually i have two because they're kind of the same uh, similar kind of ideas uh harwin has a product called easy cable clips and yeah, there's a DigiKey link right there i need to check this out these are like surface mount clips that you mm. could put on your board that you can route wires on oh so you just slide the wire into it and uh,
1: the and little fingers closed oh that's cool
0: yeah, I don't know I don't have any products that would ever I, I've ever designed that I'm like, oh, that would be such a good solution for. But I could think of like if you have a wiring harness that comes on your board or um, any kind of like high current power routing that you want to use like an external cable for, this would be perfect for.
1: Yeah, I was thinking because in one of my amplifiers I, I do have some offboard wiring. Um, but I designed everything such that all of my connectors are right on the edge of the board. but Because uh, I was thinking, this could be really useful, but not in this particular product. Um, I'm curious, though, does this come on a reel? Yeah, they come on reels. Okay, yeah, tape and reel. That's cool. Yeah. I, I think this
0: is one of those products that when you look at them, you're like, oh, this is such an awesome idea, but none of my current ideas would benefit from it. Yeah, It's one of those, you've just added another tool to your toolbox of like, product design like oh now i know this thing exists so if i have a a problem with my assembly that can be it can be solved with this component
1: yeah yeah so i mean if if for some reason your design requires say a a a jumper that is um that goes across your board so it terminates it begins and terminates on your board these could be really useful for that yeah And then the other one very similar is from a company
0: called Mac eight. And I think it's a, that's a Japanese company. And it's their CZ series wiring clip for surface mounting. And it's like for multi PCB assemblies inside of a chassis. This gives a place for wires to kind of like rest on. So like if you have a wire, uh, a wiring harness that runs across a bunch of boards, you could put these like hooks on your on your board on your PCBs, oh and yeah. then the wires can just hang in there. That is <laughs> that seems incredibly specific. It, it's very, but it's like now you you've put that tool in your toolbox now and you're like, oh, okay. Now if I ever design anything that's like this, and I need to have a spot for like this wiring harness delay, bam.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could Man, these are great. Uh this this is like this is next level in terms of um like a lot of us in terms of designers, we think of the board. We don't necessarily uh we're not necessarily experts in the system. This is the guy who knows all the system tricks.
0: Yeah. This is, this is a system level. System yeah. product level assembly.
1: Yeah. That's now, really cool.
0: This Mac eight company looks like they have a lot of cool stuff. So I'm gonna dive into the website later. But um yeah, they got some cool stuff in here.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm curious. Can you share why you're looking at these kinds of things?
0: I I actually just, I found the Harwin Easy Cable Clips. for What was I searching oh, for? Oh, and then just started diving into it? Yeah, I, I just, I, 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 that, those are not parts I was actually even looking for. But I found, what, one of my favorite things I've been doing now, find components, like especially like weird connectors and stuff, is just throw it into Google image search and then just go through Google image search and see if I find anything that looks interesting Mm -hmm. or might solve my problem. And those were popping up and I clicked on them and like, oh yeah, that'd be pretty interesting to share on the map.
1: Okay. Yeah. I was just curious if you had some kind of cool project that like, no, I want weird cable management. No, I want to build something that has these now, but, uh,
0: yeah, it's very interesting that, uh, that's become my favorite method of searching for parts now. Weird parts is Google image search.
1: Hmm. They, uh, I know it's it's somewhere on there. I should probably know this better, but DigiKey has an image search as well, where you can go to connectors and say, just show me pictures of connectors, and then you can just start looking around, which I think is cool. I haven't tried that yet. It's I, I've done it once or twice. Um luckily, I haven't had to do much uh, hardcore connector searching recently. I've got, I've got my bag of tricks, and I'm holding on to those really tightly <laughs> and saying, no, like these are my connectors. I don't want to go search for more right now. But what I really like about
0: uh, this Google image search method is when you'll search, just search for some keywords, and then make sure to put, like, PCB in there or something like that, or mm-hmm. panel mount, depending on how you want to mount them. But when you click an image on Google, I mean, everyone's used Google, I'm hoping most people have used Google image search, but when you click it, the image, you get a, a pane that's like related images to these, which mm. I don't know how they come up with those, but that allows you to like go a, like a level deeper into that kind of thing.
1: You know how you know how they they figure that out. There was just some captures somewhere around where they were like, "Which ones of these are connectors?" And people have been training <laughs> captures on connectors. <laughs> Actually, I watched a thing the other day um, that that was funny. It was all about captures and the recaptures and like the new captures and. um... Uh, AI has gotten more reliable at selecting images than humans are now. So it's no longer a test of, are you a human? (laughs) So we're, we're having to, I don't know, go to whatever the next level of caption is. Hmm. All right. So, um, a few weeks ago, maybe it was actually only just two weeks ago. Um, time moves crazy now. The uh, I've, I've been working on that uh, rotary switch, uh, that new twenty-four position log um, logarithmic encoder resistor network thing. Thing, right? Yeah. So I am like ninety-nine percent of the way done with the uh, with the uh, PCB. So um, that last one percent is kind of like just nudging things around and and adding um, cosmetics and things. So. Uh, I've been playing around with getting that uploaded to the MacFab, um, platform. And this is totally not a sell for the MacFab platform, but, uh, it's been probably two years since I've uploaded something to it. I mean, I work at a contract manufacturer with, with most of the capabilities that MacroFab um, uses. So like, um, I just haven't had a huge need for it, but I'm like, Hey, I want to, I want to load this one up on, on MacroFab, which that's, that's been fun because you guys, I mean, things things are different now than when they were, especially for DipTrace, because uh, with DipTrace now you guys accept uh, it, it, interpreted, it interprets it interprets DipTrace a lot better than it did in the past. There was always some like tricks I had to do um, mm-hmm. to make it work. Um, also, the uh, the bill of materials seems a lot easier to navigate and use this time around. Um, so pretty cool. Like it's it's fun to take like big breaks from looking at macrofab. And then like just jump in and be like, "What's new?" and see all the all the new stuff with it. Once again, I'm totally not trying to sell MacroFab here. This is legit. Like I've been playing around with it for for fun. Uh, so I the uh, the schematic and the layout and my simulation um, I've put up on my GitHub. If anyone wants to check out this project, it's uh, that's GitHub.com/slash AnalogEng. Uh, this, the simulation is literally just like a huge long string of resistors. In fact, it's 92 (laughs) resistors in a, in a, in a, in a huge pattern. So if you want to check that out, um, you know, have fun with it. And, and for those who don't know, I guess I should just back up. I'm making a rotary logarithmic attenuator for a project I'm working on. It's a 24 step rotary switch, where each step is 1 dB attenuation. Uh, and the whole purpose of this is is such that you can have recall, hardware recall. If you like a setting, you can write down the number and then actually return to that, as opposed to having theoretically infinite rotation potentiometers. You can actually go to a particular step. And you even, like, uh, took a logarithmic,
0: logarithmic in quotes, potentiometer, and they're not logarithmic.
1: Not at all. They're, they're, they're two linear curves. Not, yeah. not even curved lines. Two, two lines that approximate logarithmic. Yeah, they're best fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, good enough. Let's just put it that enough. way. Uh, so I ended up with 49 unique resistor values for each one of these. So I feel bad. Um if I get MacroFab to make these, because forty-nine—that means forty-nine feeders are dedicated to just yeah, building it's, this. That would fill up half a half a machine, right? For for just this one thing. So I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. Uh, in this case, it's forty-nine unique resistor values and a total of ninety-two to, uh, resistors on there. And what 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 I I had some fun with it. I I ranked all of the resistor values. So taking one step back, I use an online calculator to calculate series and parallel resistance of uh, sets of four resistors to make these really ridiculous resistor values that are three decimal point precision. So it'll be stuff like, I need a resistor that's 1,623.426 ohms. And I use this calculator to get that bang on. And uh, I let the calculator run free and do like, I don't know how many iterations until it found, finds whatever combination finds exactly that. And uh, and so at the end of it all, I plugged those all into my schematic, I printed out my bill of materials, and then I ranked them based off of usage. And I wanted to see what is the most used resistor if you just go through a bazillion calculations, uh, which one shows up the most. And I'll preface this by saying like, it, this doesn't necessarily mean anything, and most of my resistor values are lower in, in value. Like, they're between, say, 100 ohms and, like, 2K or something like that. So your mileage would, would vary on that, but it's still fun to just kind of do some statistics on it. And the number one resistor that happened out of all of these calculations is 5.6K, for some reason 5.6k got used the most in series and parallel to work all that out. I would it, it would almost be fun to let that calculator like run for a bazillion iterations of a ton of different uh, variables and then see if there's some kind of pattern that appears that is based on the algorithm of that calculator, or it's based on just reality, maybe 5.6 or 56 K or 560 K or whatever, end up being like the most optimal value. If you need to series parallel something to get something else like if you wanted oh, to have... it gives you the most flexibility? They give you the most flexibility. I don't know. Uh, I mean, because I, we're only talking about 92 total resistors on my product here, but it got me thinking about that because it was used, like, significantly more than any other resistor on there. Uh, I'd... Don't have the statistical whereabouts to uh, to go through and do something like that because that sounds brutal. That sounds like a lot of work. But that, but uh, I don't know. It would be really fun because then at that point, like if if you had like a kit of resistors, you should just always make sure you have that available. Mm-hmm. Or and and the number two and number three resistors were three hundred and thirty R and four hundred and seventy R. So I don't know. No, no real significance there. Well, what's interesting is I
0: do see a lot of 5.6K, a lot of 330, and a lot of 470. So that's yeah. kind of interesting. I wonder why. Now, most of the applications I see are not this at all. But I wonder why that is. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if that plays into, like, normal voltages for for, like, power rails, like 3.3 volts, 5 volts, etc., and then like, ten microamps or something like that.
1: Well, be. I I think I think us as engineers we've made a lot of rule of thumbs that have just leaked out to other people. Like bypass caps, what's the value?
0: Point one microfarad, but exactly. you should calculate it if you, y- you really should, want to. Y-
1: yeah, like you could, and maybe you should in some situations. But in general, like how many people just take a shotgun filled with 0.1s and point it at their board? Like I mean, I do. Everybody, right? Like it's well, well the. We actually talked about that on the previous
0: episode, like years ago, and it's it's point one is overkill for bypass caps. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you know, it's going to work, and
1: point 0.1 microfarads are the cheapest. But are they the cheapest because they are because everyone just uses them? I think that's what it is, though, probably yeah. right. And 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 how about pull-up resistors for I two I two C lines, like. What are their normal values? Four point seven k exactly. V- virtually everyone uses that. That's another one, though that that could be calculated,
0: right? Yeah, the the optimal one to get you the right was the right rise time?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would almost I would almost wonder if like four point seven k resistors sell out more at uh, at the big players, or they just have more of them. Right, right. So <clears throat> um, in this. In playing around with this um, PCB and actually what I've been doing recently at, at work, I ran into a, a bug with with uh, DipTrace by EDA Tool of Choice that is interesting. And, and I was talking with my boss today about it because I just ran into it, but apparently he's known about this for a little bit of time. Uh, something that I don't normally need to do is um, define surface mount pads as having no paste. Uh, like okay. 99%, yeah. not 99 almost virtually always, if I have a surface mount pad, there's something going on it and I want paste going there. So I I usually let that um, dip trace handle the default workings of do, should there be an aperture on my stencil or not? Should I put mm-hmm. paste on there? Um, I think it's reasonable to trust your EDA tool with that, especially once you've built up your libraries and you just you know what the shrinkage and everything should be. But I've been working with this uh, rotary switch, which has wipers, um, and I'm, I'm doing ENIG plating on, uh, on these uh, pads that I've got. I want to make sure that my wiper and each one of my steps doesn't have any paste on it um, if I send this off to somewhere. Because the worst thing ever is if I've got a bazillion of these made and then, uh, you know, like had people put up with 49 unique resistor values on a thing just to be like, well, they're completely worthless. Because if I if I got paste put on any of these pads, yeah. and at the same time at uh, in my day job I'm working on um, Snapdome Dome actuator uh, switch designs that those require um, exposed pads with no paste on them. So I've been needing to set up dip trace such that I can have no paste on my pads, which is is very simple. You can just click on a pad and say no paste, done. Like it it works that way but what i've been wanting to do is is create a footprint where the footprint for that part is defined to have no pace such that if you bring it into a new it will always never it'll have pace always have that and like okay that sounds really reasonable right so here's what i've found that's kind of ridiculous if if you do that and you save your footprint where all of your pads that you don't want paste, you define them as no paste and you bring them into a new schematic and then you bring that schematic over to a new board, everything works great. You'll have no paste on that, it'll show up. But if it's this is an old footprint, if this is a footprint that even you made five minutes ago and you go and you save that footprint again... Uh, if you make that change at that footprint and then you try to update your footprints all the way through it doesn't pass through hmm. dip trace doesn't for for whatever reason doesn't suck that in so effectively to get around this you have to do it right the first time you have to create your footprint right the first time you have to bring it into the schematic right the first time everything else works about it this is this is just a bug where that one attribute doesn't get this doesn't propagate all doesn't propagate forward which interesting really blows because uh i created a footprint a while ago for these things and that um, had paste on that had paste on it and now i need to go and update it and now i kind of have to restart on both schematic level and board level and one of our product has almost a hundred of these i can't just click them and say update i have to literally go delete them go uh create them anew, bring them to the PCB, delete them, create them anew. And it's just like, ah, it defeats the entire purpose of having like connected and linked things. So, And it's funny, like I said, my boss was like, oh yeah, that's been around for a while. It's just, I've never needed to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was banging my head on a table this morning uh, because I was updating, bringing it all the way through and it wasn't throwing any errors or anything like that, but nothing was working. (laughs) Have you thought about use? I wonder how well
0: the uh, Enig is going to last on those wipers.
1: Uh, hard gold is the correct solution. Yes. Enig won't last forever, but... Um, I'm not concerned about it. I think it'll last plenty long, uh, mainly because these things g- won't get a massive amount of use. Like, if I was making this a product to go out the door, it'll get hard gold. In fact, all of the actuators that we're doing um, for our for our buttons with the snap domes, those are going to get hard gold plated. But for me as a home gamer and, you know, just mm-hmm. spinning a thing around, it, I
0: don't have any concerns about it. So, uh, last week I talked about the it was last week's tasty chip which wasn't a chip at all (laughs) um was the actually this week's isn't chips at all the clips chip clips um there was the easy hook insulation piercing wire clamp and unfortunately I don't have a a uh bare one here but I spent some time and I made a insulation block
1: Oh, this is that thing where you can just press the buttons, right, and then insert your wires?
0: Yeah, so I'll take some pictures for the blog, but and they're even color-coded, mm-hmm. the wire color. But you press this down, you can stick your wire in there, and then you just release it, and it automatically pierces the wire and makes the connection. That's really cool.
1: Did, did you print that with your SLA printer?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. That That printer is just it's my new favorite manufacturing toy right now um i even like made little concave chafers uh, so that you don't have to get the wire perfect like you you don't have to thread the needle you kind of just jab it in the direction of the hole and, it'll, and it guides in. it in yeah yeah um i'm pr- i'm s- super pumped how well this turned out um and uh this is this is the thing about Steven, you gotta get a 3D printer. I'm gonna convert you eventually. <laughs> Is it I, I spent 30 minutes designing this infusion
1: mm-hmm.
0: and clicked print on my printer. And an hour and 30 minutes later, this was done. You got a nice little jig. So in two hours, I went from an idea to something that actually functions, and I was able to test it and validate it. Um yeah, it's just I think the thing is with three D printers, between three D because you could easily make this on a CNC, except that you would have to machine it, flip it over, and do a bunch of fixtures. That would be
1: that would be a full day's work.
0: Yeah, it's just it's the it's the setup time is with three D printers. There's just just very little setup time. I would just say I won't have, say have, none. Have you there been using
1: some. any of the three uh, D uh, printing features from Fusion? No, not yet. You just export that as like a STP. I export
0: as an STL. STL. And then, which is just a mesh file. And then I bring that into whatever slicer. I, I use Cura for my FDM printer. And then I use. Box. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> okay. C H I T B O X. I think that's actually Chit2box. C H I T U B O X, all in one SLA slicer. Cool, because the slicer just works differently. Because instead of making a tool path, like a G code tool path, it makes a series of images. It makes a movie. Your,
1: yeah, it's a movie. It's, <laughs> it's a movie of your image, one layer at a time. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, I just go ahead and package up a 3D printer and ship it to Stephen Craig, Denver, Colorado. And, um, and then I'll play with it and let you know if you converted me. There you go. Hear that? 3D printer companies out there?
0: <laughs> Steven wants a sponsorship. Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, so, that's that. That's, um, that's super cool, though. The, the isolation fixture thing. Because um, there's, so there's high voltage worked.
1: on those wires, right? 300 volt. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, the... And then last week I was uh, trying to find a solution for a com port, like a serial com port snooper slash sniffer on windows. And I ended up using the tool free serial analyzer.com, which sounds like that old, what uh free credit report.com commercial. Um, and it's interesting because like when you go to that website, anything that has free in it and it's on the internet, it's not free. And it's like loaded with ads or whatever seems to be fine to, from like it doesn't have any ads in it like i can't even figure out if there's a way to like pay for it or anything it you sure it's not contacting the mothership underneath the hood yeah i have no idea maybe it's just like skimming my com port and sending that over to like russia or something who knows
1: <laughs> with the um, hope that a credit card number goes across your yeah <laughs> i hope that the credit card <laughs> number's in there <laughs>
0: My Arduino is talking, sending my credit card information um, over serial. But, uh, yeah, that actually solved my problem. What I wanted to do is, like, I just wanted to, like, look at the buffer and be like, okay, my Python serial script is sending this thing out into the world. And it'll just dump the bytes out. And I was, I'm like, okay, and then what am I getting back? What are the bytes I'm getting back? And it does so without interfering with the com port. So, like, programs talking don't know what they don't see the sn- uh, sniffer
1: so it just has a send and receive buffer effectively that shows you what's coming in and out yep that's cool
0: and it has way more tools too and in, 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 that's built in but that's what i was using for it's like you click the com port and then you can there's a whole list of like different tools that you can latch onto that com port and the one i was using was just called data and you just see the raw data packets
1: hmm um, do they show up as binary or how are they? However it? you
0: want to oh, display okay. it, you can pick it. Up. I was looking at it in bytes, hex code. Oh, Okay, got it. Because I was looking at like eight bytes at a time, like the packets were only eight bytes long. Oh, got it. But I was able to like, oh, like I was able to go, okay, my Python script was not sending out the bytes correctly, and so I was able to actually see that in this code, and I'm like, okay, that's why my device is not responding correctly because i'm not sending oh, the stuff so out right. so
1: it was it was your side not the so, uh, the hardware side
0: yeah yeah i i and i knew it was on my end oh just i just couldn't know. figure out it's it's it was like debugging in the dark though because like you send out because i was using a module called pi serial and you send out the bytes like through the right and you're like i assume it did it right <laughs> I assume I set everything up right and nothing's coming back. So I must've done something wrong maybe.
1: Right. And then you accidentally set your current limit to none and, uh, and you blow something up, right? Yeah, exactly. So you have (laughs) no idea. Um,
0: but yeah, so I was able to, uh, basically, uh, debug my, my software with that tool. So, so uh, you're
1: talking Skippy now, right?
0: Yeah. Talking Skippy. And that's, uh, next thing is, um, got all the meters, all that stuff working great. i um, been testing a lot of stuff. Um, and I want to expand how much stuff I'm testing with this product. And I need to automate testing clock drift. And what's interesting about this is um, I need to analyze the clock drift coming back from the, from the DUT, the device under test. Um, but not when I talk to it. So, like, my signal going out to it is in the same frequency as it coming back. I'm Basically, I'm analyzing the signal coming back from the device. Um, and I can do it manually, which is what I've been currently doing. And how I do that is I have a scope and I put it into um, uh, AC couple mode because I don't care about the DC. And it's actually, like it's like a it's like a 300 volt signal so i'm like i don't care it's 300 volts i just want the i, don't, I just want to see the waveform right um and then i do like a, a a 10 volt trigger and then hit single shot send the comm out to make the device talk and then when it comes back i get the the packet the big packet and then i zoom into the packet and then measure the frequency and then that frequency Is like a I have a reference frequency, and I just measure, and I get the percentage difference. I have to make sure I'm within that tolerance. Um, That's slow. (laughs) (laughs) Is
1: is this application for downhole communication? Uh, maybe. (laughs) 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 Okay, got it. Yeah. Um,
0: and so I, I I think, um, I'm going to try automating the scope to do that. But is there a better way to look at that signal and analyze it? Is there a better tool, I should say? Because um, a frequency counter, like on a DMM, doesn't work. Like the signal, ha- it, it,
1: if, it, if it was sad. a
0: continuous c- signal, you could do it with that. But this is not a continuous signal, and it it's modulated. So you, yeah, a DMM is just not fast enough to frequency count that. So,
1: so the test you're you're you're, you're saying here you spit out just any command and you want it to respond. And, and what you're looking at is the frequency drift in just the amount of time that it responds or over long periods of time. And just the response you get back. Huh. Okay. They uh, the, yeah. There's an expectation that it will drift at all in that amount of time. It's It has to hit a certain frequency. And so let's say it's like
0: 10 kilohertz. Well, you, when you get that back, it's not going to be exactly 10 kilohertz. It's going to be 10 point something. And they want to know how far off is that off the actual reference. Interesting. Um, and so I had to measure that frequency. And so right now I do it kind of manually with a scope and I can probably automate that with Skippy. Um, I've been looking through the uh, Siglent programming for the their scopes. And it's like 115 pages of commands that i could send this thing um and i i have a manual process that i've written down that works all the time mm-hmm. which is great because now that's repeatable. you have a flow chart <laughs> i have a flow chart and i can i can implement that into skippy but i'm just wondering if there's a better tool that can basically do a once sh- i need to capture the waveform and then analyze the frequency of that um i have actually even looked at doing an fft of the signal because you pretty much only had two you have a zero and one through the modulation. Um, and you can, you, those are two spikes on the FFT. The problem with that is the oscilloscopes that I have, your FFT resolution is not high enough to get you within the tolerance of what you're actually checking for. Um, maybe a signal analyzer could actually have that resolution. Um, but a signal analyzer is way more expensive than just measuring the frequency directly with the scope.
1: I think you need a frequency counter. A frequency counter that uh, <clears throat> uh, that can be uh, talked to over Skippy. So you could set it up for a trigger, and, and most pulse counters or frequency counters, um, you can get... Um, uh, they have like a, a window you can say like, uh, you know, count within X seconds or something like that. And I bet you a modern one, I haven't played too much with them, but I bet you a modern one um, that could be over Skippy as well. So you have a trigger uh, and then it'll just within a certain frame window, it can count however many pulses it, it snags. And that's probably your most accurate, um, yeah. pro- probably far more accurate than a, than a scope actually. I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah. Uh, you could actually, um, I, I wonder if there's, yeah, probably a pulse counter that um, once it sees the first rising edge, it begins its count um, and uh, begins a timer at the same time. I bet you. Well, that the thing is there's in that, that packet that you get back,
0: there's actually two frequencies in there. That's okay. what makes it a little tricky. And, you can measure either one to its reference and because they're both derived from the same clock on the on the device. So is it like carrier modulator thing?
1: Yeah, basically, okay. got it.
0: And so you have like a zero is one frequency and a, a, a one is another frequency. And so you have mixed frequency in that packet. So I don't know if a simple, that's why it, like one of the reasons why the DMM frequency counter that's built in just doesn't work. Because it's it counts the whole thing, and it's just like, it basically it averages it. You can't tell it to look for a a, a small
1: enough window because it doesn't know. So so uh, split the signal in two, high pass the hell out of one, low pass the hell out of the other, such that one's only reading the carrier, one's only reading the modulator, unless they're close in frequency, which they probably shouldn't be. Yeah, I wonder if you could um or, or or put a notch filter, like make a little box with a with a really hardcore negative infinite theoretical uh yeah. notch filter at the modulator such that the, you can just read the carrier. I mean, that would require duplicating things, but the, but then you could you could, you know, get really accurate of each. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. That might be, yeah. Hmm. That's probably, it's a little bit more expensive, but that would be uh, kind of definitive. If you did a notch and said only allow the zero frequency to come through, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, that actually might be the way to do it. Yeah, that's, yeah. Because you only need to measure one. Oh, okay, yeah. If you only need to measure one, then notch the living hell out of whichever the other one is, and you'll get a pretty nice wave of the other one. Uh, yeah. I mean, if, if we're talking about communication here, which we're sort of maybe not... Uh, like the, 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 the modulator and the carrier should be separated well enough away that you can, um, filter one out and not heavily affect the other one. Mm. -hmm. Yeah. have to play with it. Yeah. In fact, you could probably do that passively. Um, Yeah, actually, yeah, of course you could do it passively. You've got 300 volts available. So even if you have like horrible insertion loss, you still have more than enough signal to read, right? Yeah. It's a pretty
0: strong signal. It's a huge signal. It's like peak to peak. It's like, well, 300 volts, the offset. Um, (laughs) I think peak to peak is 30 to 40 volts. I mean, still. It's a pretty, pretty chonk signal
1: yeah so say yeah (laughs) say you you lose like 90 percent of it you could still get away um, with with reading it with standard test equipment yeah that's probably your best just just build a passive i mean uh, that'll be fun because you have to build a passive notch filter that uses high voltage components yeah
0: i'm gonna see how far i get with the scope method and because i i haven't done any of the skippy stuff yet with it and that works already um do so like my idea with that is basically capture the frame and it's i can always capture the frame and then move to a certain section of the frame and that works reliably and then uh measure the frequency and then uh, basically it will it you know it zooms in that's a not what it's doing but it zooms in to that section of the of the frame. and you don't know if it's a one or zero but the frequencies are far enough apart where you can go how what frequency is this is it within one of those if yes okay what's the how close is it now to that um that that seems to work i just have to make that automated i if that doesn't work um, or is not fast enough because speed is cycle times is, is very important is I'll try the frequency counter method with a notch filter. Cause that sounds super easy. Actually, as long as the frequency counter is can actually latch on and snag it. Um, cause I was having a problem with the D DMM frequency counters don't really work too well on trying to capture a, a, uh, signal packet because it's a packet it's a short burst it's not like sure if you plug a dmm frequency counter into mains into your wall you're gonna get 60 hertz no you know uh,
1: most of the time those are meant for continuous signals like motors and mains yeah on a dmm yeah they're not yeah you're not gonna you're not gonna get the frequency of something that spits out for 100 milliseconds
0: yeah, hundred milliseconds is on the long end, too, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, the
1: scope's it. not the scope's not terrible for that, right? But I think, yeah, I think if you wanted to be like mega accurate, frequency counter is the way to go. If scope can get you by, then just do that, right?
0: It seems the scope gets by, and I get enough resolution there. Yeah, um, I mean it, that's it's that just doesn't... a
1: frequency counter in the scope too. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, so. If
0: that doesn't work out, I'm going to try the notch with the frequency counter because it also gives me the excuse to buy another piece of test equipment.
1: Yeah. So hell yeah. (laughs) A Skippy test equipment. Yeah. I actually, you know, now that you've been doing that, I bet you going forward, if you buy test equipment, you'll be thinking, does this have Skippy or not? Most, most reasonably priced equipment does. Right.
0: Um, uh, and uh, so uh, on, since we're talking about Skippy, I found a really nice, um, and so instead of talking like the raw port comms over Python, like using, uh, there's a module called PySerial. So instead of using just PySerial and like hammering out the comm port uh, with the right signal, um, I found a another Python module called uh, PyVisa which allows it to basically talk Skippy with a, you know, with strings. So it all, it does the back end interpolation for you and handles like connecting and disconnecting to devices correctly. Um, I like that a lot. It seems to work pretty well. Um, my current project is like half that and half the old, old way I was doing it like old school Skippy, I guess. But, um, my next project would be all that Pi Visa.
1: I think it's Pi Visa. Let me make sure. So, so a Skippy enabled uh, test device just shows up. Each one individually shows up um, as a com port. Yes. Yeah. Each one is its own com port. Um, so, how do you identify each one? Does it have like a, a a name for the com port? So you have to go search and be like, this com port is X.
0: So Pi Visa um, allows you to if 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 they if the device is a newer usb model of the device it will actually respond with like it's uh when you when you do the the port calling with PyVisa, visa it will actually will respond with its model number and its serial number so you can have a unique identification for um and then you can call it that way if you have an older device like some of the devices i'm using i have a older dmm and a power supply that's just like COM port 14. That's the only thing you know. You can connect it with PyVisa. And then you, what I do is I check it. I'm like, hey, what are you? Because you can send it an identification command and you go, and it'll respond with, oh, I am GW. I think it's GW, I, I Tech Link. In-stack I can't or remember whatever. the company name. Anyways, it's the high voltage power supply. And it'll respond with, like, this is what I am. And you're like, okay, that's the correct thing to hook up to. So, so you're not, so sending, really, you're not like, sending random commands to like the power supply.
1: Well, and and, and okay, so actually what you're getting into there is, is something it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. Um, but but this is in relation to being a contract manufacturer. Like when you get somebody's program, if they wrote it such that it's like meant for their com ports that they wrote on their computer. Their, their hardware work. configuration. Their hardware configuration. And so exactly what you just described is what should happen at the beginning of a program where it walks through all the available com ports, asks what's connected, finds, oh, this one is on com port X, and then reestablishes it or or reconfigures the software to always use that. Just like little things like that matter. Um, oh, in yeah, because I
0: don't want to be configuring that every single time I run the script.
1: Right, you want it to be able so to be I on write, any I machine and connect to any yeah. com port, any USB port. Yeah, that's critical. Yeah. But yeah
0: the, the PyVISA module for Python kind of handles that part. That's cool. Like you do there's a command that basically goes it just gets all the com ports and then you can and then if the com port um if it's a newer module it will actually instead of being a com port it will actually list what it is and so you can connect to that thing always um, if it sees it So in
1: that case you're not even looking for comports you're looking for the device like it'll just give you a list of devices you're looking for a device identification yeah that's cool that's the way it kind of should be
0: (laughs) yeah well older devices just give you a comport and you basically have to open it up and go hey are you what I think you are and I mean yeah yeah. uh, understandable I know what you're talking about yeah I'm making sure that it does that because I'm going to be one assembling like a lot of these things. So I don't want to have to like manually configure, oh, this computer booted up with this thing plugged in first. So now that's com one.
1: Yeah. Oh, and then and then, you know. And then you get a call and the operator's like, it's been working the past couple of days, but something changed and I don't know what, but I didn't do anything. And then you find out that they moved a USB from one port to the next and then it screws everything up, right? Oh, yeah. Because it, it decides, oh, not not now that device is COM 18 now. And then you go into device manager and they have 254 COM ports open. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, well, I remember that.
0: So... Windows still has this problem, yeah. yeah. Of it still exists in Windows 10 that you the most COM ports you can ever have is 254. Yeah, and when you hit 254, no new COM ports can be added. So, you can if you've plugged in 254 unique COM ports because Windows, when you plug in a COM port, a new device, it assigns a new COM port to it if it's a new device it's never seen before. Um, which is great because. It's actually great for solving the solution, the problem that Steven's talking about, which is if I plug in this multimeter to my computer, it will always be COM8 on that computer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Great. Awesome. Actually, that's actually a really good feature. Um, the problem is it plug in 254 multimeters. Now I need 250. Like I plug in a new multimeter that I've ne- it's never seen before. It goes, oh, wait we don't have another bit to assign 255 to it and so you have to actually go into the register clean out that (laughs) that
1: association register and start all over again and and yeah for for or you have to reboot because it's the registry and and for most people this isn't a problem but if you're a contract manufacturer and you've got 5000 units that each need to pr- plug in and all have an FTDI yeah, chip, all in have it. An FTDI chip <laughs> <laughs> then it then it goes really quickly and then your operator calls you up and is like i don't know what's wrong yeah yeah oh man yeah, it, that
0: hit, that happened to us that was like one of the first products we were working on i think they were motor uh, controllers
1: i think they were some kind of like stepper motor controller or something like yeah. that
0: and uh yeah, and we, we never even came across that I mean, that was one of the first products we were, were working on at MacFab. Mm. And it's just just, uh, we ran into that and we were like scratching our heads. And it actually was church. Church was like, oh yeah, there's a weird com port issue with like Windows. And we looked into it and we're like, oh, oh damn, that's God. what it is. Yeah, right. And so we ended up writing a little script that like, it was a little batch script that would, yeah, it was a pert, and it would just reboot the, the computer too. Because <laughs> you had to reboot afterwards.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Fun, yeah. My uh, that that little U tracer um, box I built years ago. It has an FTDI in it, and um, and so every time I use it, I, it usually is going in a different USB port than the last time I used it. So I have to go to Device Manager, find out what com port just magically appeared when I plug it in, and then I have to go to the software and make sure it's looking at that. Because if it isn't, then the, everything crashes. Like, ugh, mm-hmm. I hate com ports,
0: but they're so nice too.
1: I mean, they're amazing. Yeah. It's a love-hate relationship. Oh, for sure. For sure. 100%. So um, a little bit more on um, last week, I was talking about uh, some adventures in injection molding. And uh, kind of as I go through things, I just want to give like little updates on uh, on the podcast here. Just because this this fun. whole episode has just been little updates. A bunch of little nibbles here. Uh, so those, those plastic actuators that I got, um, injection molded, f- um, for the, uh, Snapdome stuff, they work fantastic. In fact, I posted some pictures up in the Slack channel and, and a video of, of, uh, you know, them being all clicky and, uh, everything, everything works well. Uh, there's a, there's a handful of small changes that I want to make just to adjust feeling and things like that. But there's two, there's two kind of, I, I guess you could call them major issues, but major as in like, they're not stopping the thing from functioning, but they are things I have to fix. So uh, when it comes to the injection molding with the company I've been working with, they've been fantastic about, you know, working through issues that maybe I didn't see or or whatnot. But at the end of the day, there's still some things where it's just like, well, we have to, we have to actually make one to see how it comes out. And then you adjust it from there. Uh, so, in this initial batch that I got, um, they they all dimensionally came out well, but the center pole, the actual piece of plastic that cylinder that that um, the user touches on the top and the bottom of it hits uh, um, hits the, hits the snap Knock dome contact. itself. That pole has two issues in it, and I and I'm having to figure out how do I want to fix this. So the very top of the pole, um, I I defined it to be flat, but Based off of the geometry and based off of how much plastic is in there, it actually has a small divot in the top. Um, as As the plastic cools in the mold, the the top shrinks down and creates a, a divot in there. So, I think the first solution to that is in the mold to cut extra relief on the plastic, such that when it does cool, it, it'll cool down to be flat. Yeah. So it, it's cast domed. Yeah. And it cools flat. Correct. Correct. Now, the hard part is how much do you dome? How far do you go? Uh, that's that's pretty tough to to estimate. And I was talking with the with the mold makers, and they're like, "Well, that's another situation that we just have to try." In a way, like they have some simulations, and in fact, they showed me some pretty cool, like they look like heat maps that'll show where they estimate shrinkage to happen and things, uh, which is pretty cool. So. Uh, I have some ideas, at least. A- at some point, when you when you're first designing the the, the 3D m- image of whatever you're mm-hmm. going to make, you design that really heavily based off of dimensions. Like everything is accurate, specifically to numbers. But as soon as you actually go and shoot it all of those numbers go out the window and everything becomes percents. Uh, so we don't work as in like, oh, we expect this much, uh, th- this many mills of movement. We're like, well, it might be 3%. It might be 2%. It might be whatever. So I'm having to work in that now. So um, hopefully, hopefully I'll get it right on the next iteration. Because uh, it actually didn't shrink as much as I thought it would. So I don't have to overcompensate too much. Um, but the answer is, I started with flat, I now have to go to domed, I just don't know how much. So, if anyone does know, hit me up in the Slack channel, if anyone has a like, general gut feel about these things, um, I'd, love to, I'd love to get some, uh, some insight on that. So then the other issue that, that I've run into, which funny enough again is, is not functional, um, or it doesn't impact the thing functionally, that center cylinder pole as the as the uh, plastic cools in the mold, it cools differentially, and the outer skin of that cylinder cools first uh, and hardens. But then the inside of the pole is still hot, and what ends up happening is it sucks a vacuum bubble into that center pole. So if you look through the pole, which right now I have, um, it's. Semi-transparent, uh, um, but transparent enough that you can easily see. There's a bubble in the middle of that. Part. Well, you are also shining a light through it. Well, and that's the that's the thing. Like we, the the end result is to shine a light through it, so w- it needs to be clear, uh, or not clear. I apologize. Uh, it it the, uniform, uniform, yeah, homogenous. And that's actually the, the potential solution for this. I think I want to frost and um diffuse the material as much as possible such that even if there was a bubble in there it wouldn't be visible uh in fact the switch that i was trying to replace with this um, already has that character characteristic it it doesn't have a bubble in it but it has um it's it's so that diffused you know that you couldn't see through it right now yeah yeah who, who knows <laughs> um so that's another thing if anyone has um some thoughts on how to reduce internal they call them voids, internal voids in a plastic injection mold. Um, I'd love some insight on that as well. But I think the solution right now is to change material slightly, and then to frost and diffuse as much as possible. Frost is not the right word. De- uh, go with a diffused um, uh, material. Yeah. And luckily, the bubble is not. It's it's visible, but it's deep enough that like it's not affecting the uh, the um, cast itself.
0: I wonder how you would get rid of that if you were had to make it completely clear.
1: Well, so the, here's the thing. Due to the geometry of, of, of this part, that center pole is connected to the outside frame of the whole actuator through the springs of the uh, – well, through the legs of the spring, the actual mm-hmm. moving part. And um, based off of the uh, requirements of that center pole – we weren't able to put the the gate, the point at which the plastic enters into it, anywhere on that center pole. We had to put it on one of the legs of the frame that goes that surrounds that. So the plastic, gotcha. the plastic okay. that enters the center pole has to flow through the legs of the spring to get into yep. that. If the gate was allowed to be on the center pole, um, that I've been told that would be less of a of a concern. So I don't know. Maybe I can adjust. It's probably because the. Well, this is my gut is the
0: plastic is already cooled down a bit by time it gets to that center pole.
1: Yeah, it's all. It flat. also has to do with um, how gas exits the mold because I had to put specific geometry to make sure that there was places where it could escape. But once again, it couldn't escape in that center pole area. So it's just I don't know. It's difficult the way. Mm-hmm. Th- this is not the easiest piece to shoot now there is another situation where the uh, the company was like well we could have uh made a mold that guarantees that this wouldn't happen but the mold cost would have been like six times the cost of that that i paid for the, my <laughs> mold and they're like we didn't even tell you about that because it's like you, you wouldn't have done it and i was like you're right I yeah, wouldn't you're, have done it's it. way out of your budget way outside of the budget and they, they looked at the part and they're like we know that this is not worthy of that kind of a mold yeah. it would have been like a multi-cavity like break apart in all these different ways so they went with the easiest and cheapest um that gets the job done kind of kind of thing so mm. as i as i solve these i'll i don't know i'll share my knowledge whatever i learn on that
0: so we got two questions for our community this week it's exciting cool so i think that's it for me yeah, so that was the MacFab Engineering podcast. We got to get better at ending these things. We're your host, Parker Dolman
1: and Stephen Craig.
0: Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you. Yes, you are a listener for downloading our podcast. And thank you for our viewers on Twitch, our live studio audience. If you have a cool idea project or topic or have a suggestion for the things that Steven and I are working on, let us know, tweet us at macfab at Longhorn engineer or at analog ENG or emails at podcast at macfab.com. Also check out our Slack
1: channel. It is macfab.com slash Slack invites are open.